You're listening to a sermon preached at Chael English Ministry in Sydney. We believe that God speaks through His Word, the Bible. We pray that as you listen, you will hear God's voice and be moved to worship His Son, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You for the precious gift that it is to us. We pray now that you would enable us by your Holy Spirit to know what this passage is saying and to know how we can respond to it appropriately with our lives. Lord, please give us hearts and minds that are humble and willing to receive your truth. We pray that through this portion of your word that you would help us to honor the Lord Jesus Christ with our lives and that you would make us more and more like him. For it is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Amen. Uh, To start today, I have a story for you, a true story. There was a man who was, unfortunately for him, placed in a mental asylum because he claimed to be Napoleon Bonaparte, the great French general of the 1700s. A young doctor, new to the ward, moves from one patient's bed to the next, and he sits down next to this man who's claiming to be the great French general. He begins to try and reason with him about his delusion. He says to him, it says here on your birth certificate that you were born in Manchester in 1954, but Napoleon was born in 1769 in Corsica, Italy. How do you explain that? I am Napoleon. The man replied confidently. The doctor replied, well, Napoleon could speak French and Italian, but you seem to have no grasp of these languages. How do you explain that? I am Napoleon, the man replied just as confidently. Napoleon led armies across all of Europe, but according to your passport, you've never left England. How is that possible? I am Napoleon, the man replied confidently. If you haven't done any of these things, then how can you be so possibly certain that you are Napoleon? Asked the young doctor, looking confused. At this, the man smiled and happily said back to the doctor, because Jesus told me so. At this, the man in the bed next to him, shocked and furious at what he just heard, he stood up and he said, I did not. It's a hard crowd. Even when I bring a joke, no one laughs. So obviously, come on, guys. Well, it's a true story, but um, it's funny. And also, more than that, it underlies my point for today. If you're going to claim to be someone, there are certain things that confirm whether you are telling the truth. I cannot claim to be Napoleon Bonaparte. Apparently, we're the same height, but he was a white man, and I'm clearly an Asian man. I can't claim to be Napoleon Bonaparte. In addition to looking different, there are other things that he did that I can't claim to have done. When Jesus came, there were many expectations as to what the Messiah would do when he arrived. Some expectations were right, some were wrong, and some were misunderstood. Matthew, in his gospel, His writing to explain to us and the original readers explained the claim that Jesus was the Messiah. Matthew works really hard at trying to explain that Jesus is a Messiah because it wasn't universally accepted at the time when he was writing this. In fact, it was argued against by lots of different kinds of people. People mocked the idea that Jesus would call himself the Christ. 
For example, you've got the Jewish religious leaders. They claimed that Jesus was a magician who had learned his uh, magical craft in Egypt. Uh, he was meant to be a deceiver from the devil who tricked people. That's the Jewish authorities. The Roman authorities, they mocked the idea of a common man who claimed to be divine, who claimed to be God. Uh, there's a famous picture of Roman graffiti where it's a man's body being crucified, but with the head of a donkey. And it reads, Alexa, Alexa Menos worships his God. It's, there it is. You can see it there. Uh, you can't really see it clearly, but it's, it's an ancient piece of Roman graffiti. And next to the image is written the words, Alexa Menos worships his God. So there's a Christian man called Alexa Menos, and he's been mocked for believing in Jesus. Believing in Jesus as the Messiah was an idea that was mocked and laughed at and ridiculed and rejected. There was no way, people thought, that Jesus could be the Jewish Messiah, the Christ. And yet, the truth is, it still seems to many of us today in the modern world like somewhat of an incredible claim, like in the literal sense, incredible, not credible. Jesus being the Messiah, it's an idea that's still mocked from academic institutions right through to popular fiction, from Dawkins to Dan Brown. Let me uh, quote to you from Richard Dawkins' writing. He says this, The evidence points to the Jesus Christ of the New Testament as a fictional composite of characters, real and mythical. A composite of multiple people is no one. And he continues on by saying this, What the composers of the New Testament have done is cherry-picked ancient ideas and reworked them to revolve around a fictional character in order to further their agenda. Do you see what Richard Dawkins is saying? He's saying that Jesus is not the Son of God. He's saying that because he's a mixture of real and fake characters, that he's not real. He's a fictional character. He's invented by the gospel writers. Well, church, in our time together now, we're going to see how Matthew wants to use the earlier years of Jesus' life to testify to the fact that he really is the Messiah. That's what chapter 2 is all about. So I hope you got your Bible open there at Matthew chapter 2. We're going to go through this chapter together. Well, uh, you can see that at the very start of this chapter, Matthew is going to give us a context and a geography for the events that are going to take place in this chapter. He's also going to introduce us to several different characters. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which is a town that's about a two-hour walk south from Jerusalem. It's nine kilometers. It's the distance from here to West Ride. That's kind of the distance we're talking about. As you might know, uh, Jerusalem was a capital city of Judea, and at the time, the ruler of that area was a man by the name of Herod, King Herod. History records him as Herod the Great. King Herod was a cunning and a ruthless and a political leader. He was actually quite a successful political leader. He knew how to play the game. Uh, King Herod, he reigned for about 40 years up until Jesus' day, and he was famous for building the temple that stood during Jesus' day. Uh, later, we're going to read about how Jesus rages, and he goes to a temple, and he flips tables, right? That's the temple that he built, that uh, King Herod built. Uh, Herod himself, he was only half Jewish. That's important. He was not particularly a Jewish favoring man. He was only half Jewish. He didn't really care about his ancestors. In addition, Herod was not particularly a moral man. He wasn't really a good guy. In order to maintain his position as the ruler, he relied heavily upon the support of the hated Roman government. 
Uh, King Herod, you may or may not know, he killed off many of his own family members, including his own sons, to protect the throne and to maintain his power. That's the kind of guy we're talking about. He's, he's not a great guy, to say the least. Also, in the opening verse, we're introduced to another group of characters called the Magi. Magi, they're sometimes referred to as the wise men. And these guys are probably astrologers, guys that gave their lives and devoted their time to observing and studying the patterns of the stars. These are your ancient astrologers right here. Uh, These Magi, they probably came from somewhere in Persia to the east of Judea. And Matthew clearly explains to us the purpose of their journey, the reason why they came. They've come to Jerusalem in order to find the one who is to be the king of the Jews. The king of the Jews. That title is a reminder, for those of us who've read chapter one, of Jesus' royal lineage. You should be getting flashbacks of chapter one. Well, the Magi have arrived in Jerusalem by following a star that they saw in the east when they were back in their hometown, far away from Jerusalem. Matthew is showing his original audience, Jewish people, and he's showing us, get this, that it was non-Jewish foreigners who followed a sign from the heavens to announce the arrival of the king of the Jews. I think that's amazing. I think that's fascinating. The Magi's, their response to this, to this sign from God, sign from the heavens, their response is to want to worship this king of the Jews. They want to to worship this infant child. Look with me in your Bibles at Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now Matthew reveals to us that this is kind of a big deal. It's kind of a big deal, the news that the Magi bring. Clearly, Herod is troubled by this news. Let me give you some context. Uh, The first part of Herod's reign was marked by him having to fight off claimants to his throne. People were trying to usurp his throne, so he's killing them off. He's fighting off people who are trying to take his throne, uh, people trying to rule Judea instead of him. And at the time of Jesus' birth, King Herod was in the midst of rewriting his will, something he will do six times. That's the kind of person he is. That's how concerned he is about his succession plan. So if you're Herod and you hear this news, you've got to think about how he's got to feel, right? So there he is in his throne. He hears about this new messianic claim to the throne. Clearly, this is not something that he wants. This isn't something that he, he likes to hear. The people of Jerusalem, though, they also knew that this meant trouble for them as well. They were very understanding of the political climate. They knew what was going on. All of them knew what Herod was like. So all of them knew, okay, now everyone's in danger. So in order to find out about this new possible rival that he has, King Herod, he turns to the priests and to the teachers of the law, and he wants them to try and figure out exactly where this Messiah King is meant to be found, is meant to be born. Look with me at verse 3 and 4. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Now, the chief priests, these teachers of the law, 
They're very clear in their response to Herod that the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. Why? Because this is the fulfillment of an ancient prophecy. It's given in the book in the Old Testament called Micah. Now, in this chapter, uh, chapter 2 of Matthew, what we see now is the first of four prophecies that Matthew is going to say is fulfilled in Jesus' early childhood. Now, this one, the one that we want to look at first, it's a prophecy that's found in the Old Testament book of Micah, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and this one was very clearly seen as a messianic text, even in ancient times. Look with me uh, on the screens at Micah chapter 5, verse 2. This is what it reads. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So why is Matthew bringing this up? Why is the birthplace of Jesus significant? He brings it up because it's one of the objections that the Jewish people had. People were arguing about where Jesus or the Messiah would be born. Everyone was convinced that the Messiah was meant to be born in Bethlehem, not Galilee. And you can read about that at the end of John chapter 7. It was very controversial. Just like the doctor raising objections to the mental patient's claim to be Napoleon, so these religious leaders would oppose Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. Why? Because he did not match their criteria. And Matthew seems to be responding to that argument right here. So as you look at verse 5 and 6, you're going to see how Matthew uses the prophecy here. Look with me at Matthew chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Now, I mentioned earlier that King Herod was a cunning ruler. He actually shows some of his political ability here, I think. What we see is he tricks the Magi into revealing when the star first appeared. He tricks them by lying to them because he's trying to get them to think he wants to go worship the infant king as well. So he sends them on their way, the Magi, apparently with his blessing. But for sure, as we read this, if you have eyes to see, you can start to sense that Herod is up to something. Look with me at verse 7 and 8. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. I don't know about you, but when I think of King Herod, I get weird vibes, you know, he's, I don't like him, he's not a good guy, this guy's so shifty in so many ways. Well, the star that led the Magi to Jerusalem now guides them again to Bethlehem, and this confirms what they received throughout scripture about Bethlehem from Herod. So here we have a sign from the heavens, but more importantly, we've got scripture telling us where this child is meant to be born. And when they get there, they're overjoyed that the star has led them to this baby. It was a long journey. You've got to think about it. There's no technology. There's no nice roads, no cars. You can imagine them walking across the desert following this star. So you can imagine their relief when they finally got to their destination. Uh, if you were them, surely as part of the long journey, you'd have doubts. Like, are we really meant to be following this star? Is it really the right thing to do? Are we meant to go this far away from our homeland? Are we safe? Uh, they didn't know if they were to reach the destination, but they did. All their effort, all their time, all their sacrifice to follow this star is finally brought them 
to the child they were looking for. And once they get there, they fulfilled their plan to worship him by bowing down and presenting him with gifts of gold, incense, and myrrh. Shout out Christmas. God's sovereign hand, we can see, is all over this story. God's sovereign hand is all over this story. The temptation is to think about the characters, right? Joseph, Mary, Jesus, the Magi, King Herod. No. The overarching theme of this chapter is the sovereign hand of God. He's really in control. Uh, God, he warns these Magi in a dream to not return to Herod. Uh, So they flee from him by going and using a different route. Look with me at verse 9 to 12. Verse 9 to 12. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route." And friends, that marks the end of the first half of this chapter. And to give you a recap, this first half of the chapter, we can see that it's really been uh, the Magi and the story of the Magi that's been moving this narrative forward. But now, as we enter the second half, the focus is going to shift as they return to their homeland. We're going to see that the focus now comes back to Joseph. Joseph, the husband of Mary. Joseph, we're going to see, he receives a dream. It's actually his second dream. He received the first dream. We saw that last week at the end of chapter one. Uh, And he received a dream. His first dream was God telling him what to do with Mary when she was found to be child, but they weren't yet married. So here to start off the second half of this chapter, we get the second dream to Joseph. It's the second time God communicates to Joseph like this. So Joseph receives the second dream and he's told with urgency to flee, run away, get Mary and Jesus and leg it. Run, go to Egypt, and they are meant to stay there until God sends word to them because Herod is trying to kill Jesus. Look with me at verse 13. Verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Joseph obeys, just like he did in chapter one. Joseph obeys. He responds to the command from God and he does what he's told. At this point, Matthew interrupts this in an interesting way. Matthew, he sees this fleeing to Egypt as actually a fulfillment of another ancient prophecy. But in order to understand that, it's important that we understand how the New Testament fulfillment of prophecy works. And I say that Because it's not always about uh, Old Testament prediction about a future event, said future event happens, prophecy fulfilled. It's not quite as simple as that. Sometimes, events that occurred in the Old Testament are what we call types, examples of something that is to come in the future. Some of the things we see in the Old Testament we see as a foreshadowing of something that's going to take place in the future. So, I think it's a bit too simplistic for us to think that Old Testament prophecy is all predictions. It's not that simple. They're not predictions as such. Old Testament prophecy is not always saying, this thing's going to happen at this time in this place. But rather, 
When things happen throughout history, the Old Testament helps us to see in picture, and the Old Testament gives us types that we can look back on. That's how the connection works. And it wasn't always obvious, and if you've read the Old Testament, you'll agree with me. It's not always obvious what's prophecy and what's not, especially what's messianic prophecy clearly and what's not. But thanks to the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, thanks to the New Covenant, the New Testament, we can now look back and see all these historical events as types, as foreshadowings. And this is, I think, a great example of one. Matthew quotes here from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Look with me at the screens at Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. This was written a long, long time ago. This is what it said. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. You've got to think about that. So originally, it wasn't seen as a prophecy about the Messiah. I think that much is obvious. Rather, it was actually simply a statement of fact. It's simply talking about what God had done in the history of Israel. It simply is God saying, I loved Israel and I called him out of Egypt. And to be honest, there's nothing much messianic about that in the context that it was originally given. But Matthew, the author of this gospel, Matthew, he's trying to make the point that just as God's people, Israel, were led into Egypt and then out again by the sovereign hand of God, so too Jesus, God's son, is being led into Egypt and will be led back out again by the sovereign hand of God. It's a type. That's the link. It's the history of God's children being repeated, in a sense, by God's son. Jesus did not go into Egypt, I'll have you know, to learn the magic trade, uh, as the Jewish leaders would later accuse him of, but rather, he, Jesus, went to Egypt, and it was to paint a picture of how he would fulfill the history of the Old Testament people of God. And I think that's far richer than just thinking about testimony as uh, prophecies, as prophecy event fulfillment. I think when we see things like this, we see that God works in a much more poetic way, in a much more grand scale. And I think it's something we should rejoice in. Look with me at verse 14 and 15. Matthew chapter 2, verse 14, 15. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And here, at this point, the story takes a dark twist. Herod, when he discovers that he's been tricked by the Magi, he's enraged, he's furious, and he responds in a brutal and a shocking manner. We, the readers, we can see just how much danger Jesus is in. We can see how much of an extreme situation this is, that, that Joseph had to negotiate on the infant king's behalf. So there should be a sense here, as we keep reading, where we feel the tense situation that Jesus is in. King Herod commands that every male child under the age of two in Bethlehem is to be killed. Not just Bethlehem, but every male child in the whole region. Just a quick side note, we read this as Christians, not just Bethlehem, but seeing masses of babies being murdered, friends, is not a modern phenomenon. Friends, it's also worth noting that this is the way that the powers of the world responded to the birth of the Messiah. They reject him, they're jealous of him, they misunderstand him, and they have all these attempts to destroy him. This is just one example of many, but look with me at verse 16. 
feel this. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Well, the tragedy of this is not lost on Matthew. He interprets this as another sign as to who Jesus is, as testified to by the Old Testament. This time, Matthew quotes from the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. Let's read it together in Matthew's gospel first. Look with me uh, at verse 17 and 18 of Matthew chapter 2, verse 17, 18. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. The picture given to us here is a poetic one. It's poetry. Even when this, when this passage was originally written back in the Old Testament in Jeremiah's day, we know that Rachel had died many centuries before that. So it was even ancient history for them. Rachel died centuries before what Jeremiah writes about. So it's poetic language. It's poetic language which, where Jeremiah originally is writing about her and he's portraying her as the mother of the tribe of Benjamin, lamenting the destruction and the exile of her descendants, her children. So the passage here, again, it's not a direct prediction about the slaughter of these babies in the Herod era. That's not what it's about. Instead, what we have here is a picture of hope, a picture of hope coming out of a time of great painful despair. How do we know this? How do we know it's a picture of hope? Well, because if you read Jeremiah chapter 31, that is the only note of despair in the whole chapter. The rest of the chapter is very hopeful. And Matthew is pulling that passage from Jeremiah to prove this point. And you can see it there in the following. If you look, at, look with me on the screens at Jeremiah chapter 31, we want to look at verse 16 and 17, which is the verses directly following what we just read. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 16 and 17. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your, and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. It's hopeful. It's hopeful language in Jeremiah 31. So Matthew's point here in chapter 2 of Matthew, his point is that God has declared in the Old Testament that his hope will come even in a time of despair and great pain and loss. That's the point. And this is exactly what happens with the arrival of Jesus. Here is the king of the world, the hope of the world, arriving in the midst of great pain and despair for so many people. He's fulfilling Old Testament prophecy in that sense. Now, just as God promised, he speaks again to Joseph upon the death of Herod. In another dream, he tells Joseph to return to Israel because the ones who were trying to kill Jesus are now dead. And as he has done each time, Joseph responds in obedience to God's word. Look with me at verse 19 to 21. Matthew chapter 2, verse 19 to 21. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up. Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Good news, right? Happy days, that's good news. But when they get to Jerusalem, 
Joseph discovers that Herod's son, Archelaus, is now reigning in his father's place. Now, if you stop and think about it, just historically what's going on, considering the number of wills that Herod wrote, considering the instability of the throne, considering the instability of this guy, the son, Archelaus, on the throne, you can understand why Joseph might have been a little bit reluctant, a little bit nervous about heading back into Archelaus' territory. And so he must have been super relieved when God visits him yet in another dream and directs him actually to the semi-Jewish territory of Galilee, to the north, specifically to a town called Nazareth. And Matthew informs us again that this is to fulfill what the prophets had said about the Messiah. Now, earlier I said four prophecies, and if you're counting with me, you might have counted three. This fourth and last one, it's a bit interesting. It's a bit tricky uh, because the last prophecy mentioned in Matthew chapter 2, the tricky thing is no one can actually find it in the Old Testament. Like, it's not there. You go through the whole Old Testament, you won't find it. But let me read it. Let's read this together and see if we can figure this one out together. So look with me at Matthew 2, verse 22 and 23. We're looking at the fourth prophecy in this chapter. Verse 22, 23. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he will be called a Nazarene. So, what do we make of this? A prophecy being fulfilled that isn't even in the Old Testament. Friends, I think that the clue to the best understanding of this prophecy, prophecy? The best clue to understanding this is in the fact that when you think about it, and if you look carefully, on each of the previous occasions of fulfillment, you'll notice that Matthew refers to a quote from the prophet, singular, the prophet. This time, however, he says, prophets, plural. Matthew is aware that he's not quoting a direct passage from the Old Testament. Rather, in Matthew's mind, it's kind of, I don't know if I can say this, it's kind of a vibe. It's kind of a vibe of what a lot of other prophets are saying. Let me explain. Uh, a Nazarene back in Jesus' day was frowned upon, was looked down upon. People didn't really like you if your family is from Nazareth. See, Nazareth was in Galilee of the Gentiles. Gentiles lived in Galilee, unclean, non-Jewish people. And the Jewish people of the time, they looked down upon Galilee and everyone from there because everyone in Galilee is basically a half-breed. You're not pure Jewish. You're Jewish mixed with some other kind of blood. In other words, they weren't pure. Therefore, in Jesus' days, a Nazarene was someone to be despised because you're unclean, you're maybe half clean at best. You're a mixed bag. It's a weird place you come from. We don't want to hang out with you. Go back there. That's a Nazarene. Matthew's point is that this makes sense because in the Old Testament, it was prophesied that the Messiah would not be one who was immediately praised and accepted and glorified, but rather the Messiah would be son, would be someone who'd be looked down upon, frowned upon, despised. Perhaps most famously, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, which reads this, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering 
and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Now look, we can't know for certain that this is a specific text that Matthew has in mind as he writes this. It's definitely one of the passages, I think. But here is Matthew giving us a picture of what the Old Testament said about the coming of the Messiah. He would come, but he will be despised, hated. And also, we can know for sure that Matthew is using this, these prophecies and everything in this chapter, to communicate to the original hearers, they were Jewish, to communicate to them that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament says. All the Messianic texts in the Old Testament, they point forward to this young king. Matthew's got a lot more material to come, but at this point, in this chapter, the point that he's trying to make is that this young life and the events surrounding his birth and his early childhood, all of this testified to the fact that he really is the Messiah. He is who he says he is. That's Matthew's agenda as he writes this too, this chapter two. Well, that's what our passage says. Can you see what's here? Chapter two, it's a, quite a straightforward passage, I think. We have here, uh, according to the Magi, Uh, that the fact that he was a king of the Jews, he is to be worshipped by all nations. He's not just a Jew, uh, where people are going to just not really care about him, he is the Messiah. In addition, we see here that it's not only Jews that will worship him, in fact, Jews are not going to worship him for a while, the only ones who are worshipping him in this chapter, did you notice, have been Gentiles, non-Jewish people. Friends, can you see from this chapter that our Lord Jesus Christ, he has very humble origins. Can you see that he'll be despised? But so clearly, can you also see that he really is the promised one? He is the fulfillment of God's promises throughout history, Hosea 11. And he has the right details. He's born in the right town, despite what the Jewish authorities say. So here is Jesus, with all the events surrounding his young life, matching up to the fact that he really is the Messiah, the Christ. That's what this chapter is about. If you remember, um, a couple weeks ago, we talked about how our family defines us. We talked about how our family history provides us with identity and mission. And we see, we saw how Jesus' uh, genealogy does that. But it's not just our family In other words, it's not just nature, if you like, it's nurture as well. It's the events of Jesus' young life that Matthew's writing about in chapter two. All these things, it's a testimony. It's evidence pointing to who Jesus really is. Even when the infant Jesus came, and even when Jesus was, to be honest, like a piece of luggage really in the story, he's just getting carted around from one place to another by his parents, right? Even even though he might seem passive, he's very still, Clearly, the Son of God, the Messiah. That's what this chapter is on about. Look at the dreams. Look at the movement. Look at the geography. Look at the political scope. Look at all that God is doing in this chapter. Look at the danger that is in. And through all of this, can you see God's sovereign hand working all things to testify to the fact that this is the Messiah, his Son? Church, We should have no doubts as to who Jesus is. We should have no doubts about his identity. And I think that's the takeaway from this chapter. Jesus is 
the promised one. He really is the Messiah. The claim of Jesus to be the Messiah is not like the man in the psychiatric ward in that hospital claiming to be Napoleon. You see, if I was to meet that man who thinks he's Napoleon, and if he suggests to me that we together form an army and storm across Europe to hoping to, I don't know, regain the glory of France, I would not be so keen on laying down my life in support of that man. But the claims of Jesus, his claims to be the Messiah, now that's something I am willing to lay down my life for. I think there's overwhelming evidence to who Jesus says he is and how he proves it. Friends, what Matthew is establishing for us here in the early sections of his gospel is that because of what he has gone through, because of what this confirms in the Old Testament, because of what he does and what he's going to do, we can have confidence in who he is. Church, as we work through this gospel for the next year, I want you to really listen in and listen to the promises that come through Jesus. Listen to the teachings of Jesus in light of the fact that he really is the Messiah. The arguments of the Jewish leaders at his time, the Roman mockery, the antagonism and the hatred that we see from the likes of Dawkins or from fictions from Dan Brown, these can all, in one way or another, try and shake our confidence in who Jesus is. And actually, some of you more legally-minded people might respond to the evidence that we've seen today and just say to me, wait a minute, isn't that just a circumstantial case? Like, couldn't Dawkins be right? Aren't these just bits and pieces, piecemeal? Isn't this whole ideas of types and foreshadows and all that kind of stuff, isn't it something you can just artificially construct? Answer, maybe. But that's not all we have, right? We have, we have to look at the whole body of work or what, what we have. It testifies to the Messiah. Look at his early childhood, all that he survives, all that he goes through. Look at what he says Look at his genealogy, his royal lineage. Not just the events of his young life, but also look at the sovereign hand of God moving in one way or another as we see where his life is going to lead to. Ultimately, I would say, look at the resurrection of this person from the dead. Is that not enough evidence to convince to you and me that he really is the Messiah, the Christ? Our faith can stand firmly on who Jesus says he is. He is the Messiah. You are going to answer to him when you die. He is the solution for all our sin. As Christians, we know how this story ends. But today, through chapter two, Matthew wants us to see right from the beginning, right from the beginning of his life, that we can trust that he really is the Messiah. And I say that, so next time your unbelieving friends or your family question your sanity, maybe suggesting that you should be in a mental asylum for believing in the claims of Christ. When that happens, you can stand confidently on the claims of Scripture. When your workmates mock you for your seemingly simple faith, when you face that kind of discouragement, you can know in your heart with great certainty that Jesus really is the Messiah. He is who he says he is. In those moments when it all seems so strange and so weird that God would work to use some backwater hick from a semi-Jewish town 2,000 years ago to become the son of God, the salvation of the world, the prince of peace, 
We can stand firm knowing that Jesus really is the Messiah. He is. He is the Messiah. Our faith, our salvation, our eternal future, it all comes down to this infant king. All the blessings that are promised to us in the Bible, all of those things are a resounding yes and amen in the person and work of this Jesus. May you and I be fully convinced by the external evidence, by the inward work of God's spirit in our lives, by the testimony of scripture, to believe that he really is the Messiah. And if you don't yet trust in him, I hope as we study Matthew's gospel together that you will. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you so much that you have spoken to us through your word that Jesus is the Messiah. Thank you so much, Father, that we can have complete confidence in him and also complete confidence in our faith because of the evidence that you have given to us through the testimony of Matthew, through the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and ultimately through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Lord, we pray that you would help us to remember this when we face the accusations and the mockery of the world. We pray that you would help us to stand firm, holding out the gospel to everyone in our lives so that they might hear the message of salvation and be saved. Help us, Lord, as individuals and as a body to live for your glory. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.